0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Aloha Kako, halo Olengeta, and good morning. I'm Egidio, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Trust your well this morning. Uh, today on the show, what can we expect from the Great Council of Chiefs meeting today in Fiji? New Zealand government have axed the Māori Health Authority and Vanuatu will hold its first referendum since its independence. More on these stories shortly. I'm Aggie Thubau and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, a historic meeting of Fiji's traditional leaders, the Great Council of Chiefs, will take place today. The chiefly body, which had been decommissioned by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, was only reactivated last year by the Seteveni Rambuka government. After one year of public consultations, the GCC's first meeting, since its reinstatement, will be held at Pacific Harbour, outside of Suva. So our ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lede Movono, joins us now from Pacific, I say and
2: you, Agnes.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I understand, of course, that meeting is taking place today. Uh, but what really is on the agenda for this meeting?
2: Well, Agnes, as we talked about uh, previously, the GCC is, is, is kind of meeting for the first time properly. There was an interim meeting last year to kind of get it back off the ground and to start a review uh, process. But today they sit proper and top of the agenda is deciding who will lead, who will be the chairman of the great council of chiefs as it moves into this new era. I mean, what,
1: I'm just wondering, and I'm probably uh, quite a few people are wondering, why is the GCC a priority of this government?
2: It's most definitely a question on, on a lot of people's minds, Agnes, and that came out during the review of the Great Council of Chiefs. It took place over a 12-month period last year, and there are a lot of people that ask, uh, you know, whether it's a relevant still, and who should fund it, and you know, what kind of a role can um, this apex body of, of Fijian chiefs make in in nation building and and in um, <clears throat> recovering the economy. But there are also a lot of Indigenous people who have felt their rights not prioritised over the last uh, two decades or so. So they see this as a reintroduction of that priority, Agnes.
1: Lydia, I was trying to look into it a little bit more about the GCC. Certain things like, you know, bills that the government want to take before Parliament uh, will at least be discussed by the GCC first before even being referred to, to Cabinet and then on to Parliament. I mean, that's quite a significant process.
2: It absolutely is, and, and that is the role that the GCC used to have in the past and one that uh, the people who are driving its reintroduction want to bring back again. So the idea is that the Great Council of Chiefs becomes the main advisory body on all policies, Itok, okay or all government policies <clears throat> that have an impact on the Itok okay or the Indigenous community. So it is quite an, an, an a significant role once uh, the Great Council of Chiefs is, is properly functioning, Agnes.
1: Leve, you mentioned a public consultation again uh, on the review of the organisation. Can you maybe share what the key findings are of of that report?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, Chief amongst that is that um, the Great Council of Chiefs review, talk to people, and and there is a push, a big um, need for Fijians to see a GCC that, that is diverse. So that means having younger chiefs in the Great Council of Chiefs, having more women. As of yesterday afternoon, there are only three women in this body that has 54 people. So um, the review, I saw a lot of Fijians asking for a GCC that is representative of the Fiji that is today. And so that's, Something that is hoped will um, will come out in the next few days as the GCC gets back on its feet. Um, another another important key um, uh, finding of the GCC is that they want uh, for the GCC to also look into the needs of the other communities that live here. You know, bearing in mind that Fiji um, has about uh, 40% if I'm not mistaken, 40% of our population is Indo-Fijian, and we do have quite a large melting pot of diverse cultures from from in the Pacific and, of course, uh, from outside of that. So there is a need for Fijians to see this chiefly body, look into the rights and interests of other people that live in Fiji. Um, there's also a need for better governance, a better um, transparency around the way that the GCC will function. There is a um, growing concern on how political the GCC will be. And so um, in the next few days, we're going to see whether or not all of the key findings of the GCC review committee is actually going to be adopted once the new leader is put in place today.
1: And, leader, you talked about representation there, of course, them looking into possible representation of Indo Fijian. I'm wondering this reinstatement of the GCC why is it so important to all Fijians?
2: It's really important, Agnes, because in the past, the GCC had been accused of and had been involved in um, you know, uh, uh, political developments and political upheavals mm-hmm. that led to um, the victimization of other races in Fiji, particularly the Indo-Fijians. So over the last 20 to 30 years or so, during several political upheavals, Indians did not see the GCC as a body that protected them in times of chaos in Fiji. So there was uh, a lot of that coming out, uh, both in the social media, but also in the review that happened. The other races that live here, particularly the Indo-Fijians, who have been part of Fijian history for The better part of 200 years or so, want to know that when the Great Council of Chiefs is reinstated, that they will be just as important and just as safe in this country as the Indigenous people are.
1: And I just want to check, how long is this meeting going to last? Is it just for today or what's the, the plans moving forward?
2: Well, look, the meeting happens over the next two days. This morning is an elaborate uh, traditional um, ceremony, and it's a little bit more elaborate because, as we talked about yesterday, we do have the presence of Pacific uh, royalties, monarchies from around the region here in the country, and so they will be a small part of the program today. But um, top of the uh, agenda this morning is the selection or the election, rather, of a new chair, and that's going to be very important as well, because um, as you know, we are basically 14 little kingdoms in this country. So having one person unite us in this body of chiefs is a contentious issue and one that I will be paying particular attention to this morning, Agnes. But otherwise, by tomorrow afternoon, we should know who the new leaders of the GCC are and also the direction that the GCC will take, because they will discuss some of the key findings of the review that went on over the last year, Agnes.
1: And quickly, just, Leather, uh, any response, though, from the community so far about this meeting?
2: Right now, Agnes... Um the only, uh, you know, skepticism that I'm seeing in the public is around who funds this GCC. If it is only going to be for 60 or 70 percent of the population, um, do they deserve government funds? A lot of the questions I'm seeing is around that. Otherwise, there is a uh, um, a growing reception, if you like. There's a lot of people who feel that the indigenous people of this country have been neglected over the last uh, 16 years, and so they see this as a welcome move but it's going to be very important for the government and for the people behind the introduction of the GCC to ensure that the policies and the, and, and the way in which it is structured moving forward makes everyone else that live in this country feel safe and protected mm.
1: Well we will keep our eyes and ears uh, for your updates. Lide, really appreciate your time this morning. Mode And that is uh, Lide Movono, our ABC reporter there in Fiji Pacific Now the Australian Government has welcomed the election of Wheleti Teo as Tuvalu's new Prime Minister. The seasoned diplomat was voted into the job unopposed on Monday, almost three weeks after Tuvaluans went to the polls. Australia's Pacific Minister Pat Conroy wouldn't be drawn on whether he had discussed Tuvalu's security treaty with Australia, the Whalepili Union, with Mr Teo, but is confident it will be safe under his leadership.
0: My long-standing um, position is that I don't disclose confidential discussions uh, that I have with foreign governments or my officials have with foreign governments, or whether they're even taking place. You'll never see me disclosing confidential discussions via text messages to journalists or disclosing text messages from foreign leaders. Uh, where we'll go through the normal course of action with the new Tevalan government will respond to their priorities. I am very confident that the treaty is in both countries' interests, and uh, w- w- we're ready to move forward on it right now.
3: The treaty as is, or are you
0: open if there's a request to renegotiate? Well, we stand ready to respond uh, to uh, the Travolent government's views and their priorities. So we'll see what comes of it. I'll make the point that the treaty uh, was, dis, was determined by the Tuvaluan Government of the day based on recommendations from a three-person panel of eminent people, including uh, uh, the new Tuvaluan Prime Minister. Um, I'm confident that the treaty will be implemented, but we stand ready to listen to their priorities.
1: And that's Australia's Pacific Minister, Pat Conroy. Now, ABC's Foreign Affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgett says out of the contenders for the top job, Feliti Teo would be welcomed in Canberra.
4: One of the people contesting the leadership here, Anele Sopawanga, a previous Prime Minister of Tuvalu, had made it very clear he was very hostile to the union and basically indicated that if he was to become Prime Minister, he would tear it up. Uh, and so that's why Australia was watching so closely. Now, Fletty Teo, what does he make of the agreement? Well, we don't know for absolute certain because he hasn't yet opened his mouth about it since taking the top job uh, just a couple of days ago. but. There are a few clues which I think are giving Australia quite a bit of reassurance. Now, on the top of that list is the fact that Filetti Teo was one of the three eminent persons that was selected by the government of Tuvalu to advise it on the Falepili Union or to come up with options in terms of discussions with Australia for resettlement that process culminated in the Falepili Union so at least to some degree he is the author or one of the authors of that agreement uh, if not the specifics then at least conceptually the broad For it. So, Australia obviously is feeling pretty confident that now he's Prime Minister, it's going to be very unlikely that he's going to dump the Fallopili Union. He's much more likely than Anele Sopawanga to be a supporter of it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will go through unamended. Uh, There has been quite a bit of pushback in Tuvalu around that section, which essentially gives Australia a veto power over its security arrangements. So, it is possible that the new Prime Minister will still want to take another look at that and potentially amend that language. But if you're sitting in Canberra, um, you'd much rather be dealing with Belletti Teo than someone like an LA Sopawanga. And you'd have to say of all the main leadership contenders, he's the one that is least likely uh, to make any sweeping or, or large amendments to the pact. So Australian diplomats and ministers will be taking an awful lot of comfort from that.
1: And that's ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgets.
5: You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Now, valuable texts which formed the knowledge of one of Pacific's most prominent academics and historians, have been donated to Australia's top university. The 200 books were donated to the Australian National University by the family of the late Professor Bridge Lal, who passed away in 2021. As a passionate advocate of democracy, his vocal criticism of the Fiji coups saw him exiled in 2009. And the Anu's Jackie Clements told Carl Evans, his work could... Uh, would go on to help form the basis of Fiji's constitution.
3: So prepare. Professor
6: Bridgelau was regarded as one of the finest historians that Fiji has produced, so a world leader in Pacific history and in the studies of the Indian diaspora. So he published over 50 books in his career and contributed to countless others and was involved with editing numerous Pacific publications and series. So the donation includes over 200 books relating to the social, political and cultural experience and context of the of the, the group called the Chiars, which are indentured labourers from British India are transported to Fiji to work in the plantations along with other countries around the world and the collection also includes works about the Indian diaspora in the Pacific, particularly Fiji in the 19th and 20th centuries and the majority of the items we're taking into our collection are from Bridge Lyle's private library, so primarily from South Asian or Pacific writers and complement the holdings that we already have. So um, when the family reached out to us, we were really happy to look at the, um, the collection that Bridgelisle had in his private collection, and and taken copies of um, books and resources that we don't already have in our collection.
3: Two hundred uh, books. I imagine that would have been quite the stack uh, when it was when it was reeled <laughs> into the library. Now, you, you spoke a little bit about his uh, history, saying he was obviously one of the the most outstanding Pacific Island historians. Can you zero in a, a little bit for us on, I guess, what kind of uh, research he did and, and and where he made his big impacts?
2: So
6: Ed, there was a couple of themes in terms of his research, and, and primarily he worked uh, did research into things like indentured labour, which is specifically the experience of the Indo-Fijian community and the Gurmit Shars, um, alongside Fiji's colonial history and the effects of colonisation on Fijian society, politics and culture post-colonial politics, which is, and um, specifically the challenges of nation-building, democracy and ethnic relations, with a focus on political instability, coups and ethnic tensions, as well as ethnic relations and identity. So he's had a distinguished career with the ANU since 1919, he was a fellow of the Australian Academy of Humanities since 1996, and is the founding director of the Centre of Contemporary Pacific, so his list of sort of accolades. Goes on and on and on <laughs> along that vein. So he's a very prominent figure in um, sort of academia in terms of Fijian um, history and politics.
3: No, absolutely. Look, I mean, for the mountain uh, of work um, that he did, it wasn't received well in some areas. I guess most notably in his uh, in his home country <laughs> of Fiji, where where he was actually exiled from uh, in in twenty fifteen. Can you talk a, a little bit? more about his work, I guess, and how it related to democracy and I guess why that was so poorly received at the time.
6: So he was expelled from Fiji in 2009 and then he was prohibited from returning indefinitely in 2015 along with his wife, who was a fellow academic um, and her name was Manasi Lal. Um, this came as a result of the political tensions in Fiji following the 2006 military coup and Bridge Lal was a vocal critic of the coup and the subsequent military regime. And um, His exile from Fiji significantly impacted his work and personal life as a historian and academic he was deeply involved in research and teaching about Fiji's history and politics and his exile meant he was unable to work or research in his home country. He remained an influential voice in the international community raising awareness about the political situation in Fiji and the challenges faced by the Indo-Fijian community specifically. His exile highlighted the broader issues of academic freedom and political repression in Fiji during that period. So, in 2022, the prohibition order on Padmalal was revoked, so she was allowed to return um, with Lal's ashes to Fiji.
3: And just lastly, Jackie, because we are we are running out of time, but you know you are a librarian. What what impact will, will this contribution have uh, on the ANU Library? I mean, can you tell us, I guess, why it's why it's important and why this will be such a you know a great legacy for him?
6: Well, we're here in the library I work in, in the Menzies Library, is the um, library for Asia and Pacific material and scholarly research. So Bridge Lyle's works uh, contribute to that sort of scholarship and academic research for students who continue to study at the ANU, and particularly in the College of Asia and Pacific. So his research is regarded as having had a lasting impact on scholarship and public discourse and policymaking in Fiji and beyond and his commitment to historical inquiry, social justice and democratic principles, it makes him one of the most respected figures in the academic community and a leading voice for progressive change in the Pacific region. So the wide-ranging impact of his work here in the library means that other scholars and students and members of the public have access to his research and his works, um, and about to be enjoyed and read more widely with the community.
1: And that was Information Access and Coordinator at the ANU's Menzies Library, Jackie Clements. Reporter there was Carl Evans.
7: Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host Aggie Tupou. We head to Aotearoa, New Zealand, where a fierce debate is raging in Parliament as the government attempts to repeal the Māori Health Authority. Parliament met late into last night as government MPs pushed for the bill to de-establish the authority. Many see it as the government's first step in rolling back Māori reforms, and it's drawn heated public debate. Joining us though this morning to talk more about this matter is public health expert Sir Colin of that I say Colin?
8: Oh, my lord, Lily, Aggie, long time <laughs> no here
1: <laughs> That is, it's been a while, sir, but I appreciate your time this morning. Look, as we get into this, I mean, this was passed under urgency. I'm wondering, is this repeal likely to happen then?
8: Oh, I think it's a done deal. A lot of negative comments uh, about it, but uh, obviously they pledged this pre-election, so I guess they had to go through with it. Uh, Some of us don't really understand what it's trying to achieve, particularly because it's going back to an old option that we've had for years and has made uh, not a lot of difference to improving Māori health.
9: Yes, Sir Colin,
1: look, from a public health perspective, what's the likely impact then of the removal of the Māori Health Act or authorities? Apologies.
8: Oh, well, the new the Minister of Health, Shane Reddy, who uh, is Māori, is uh, saying he'll um, have decision-making about Māori health closer to the communities and all of that. Um, and he thinks that that's how the new coalition government will improve outcomes. I think those of us who've been around the traps a while are very cynical about whether, in fact, that's uh, achievable. There isn't anything um, new or exciting that gives us any confidence that we will have improvements on Māori health outcomes. Mm.
1: I understand that you had actually stepped down from a government health advisory body last year Because over these new sort of government policies, I remember you even saying that they are not going to treat our Pacific people well. Clearly, this seems to be pretty much the same for Māori and that they deserve better. So are you really seeing your concerns coming to fruition then?
8: Well, I mean, some people would say it's early days and we should give the coalition government an opportunity to make the changes they say will improve outcomes for Māori and Pasifika people. As I say, some of us who've been around a while get very cynical about these things. Uh, there's a clear and deliberate uh, rolling back of uh, Māori policies of reducing use of Tereo, the Māori language, uh, reducing Māori influence across the public services. So, you know, when you do that and there's no clear pathway in leadership, it's very hard to see how we can make improvements in the chronic uh, inequities that we've seen in health and in housing and in education for Māori over the years. Which, uh,
1: you know, a lot of people talk about representation, that rep- representation matters, uh, even at a health level. I mean, uh, do you feel that there was even proper consultation or that proper consultation is needed?
8: Well, in terms of the abolition of the Māori Health Authority, clearly it's uh, uh, done under urgency. There's been no provision for public uh, input, so uh, that's why I thought it's uh, probably already a done deal. A lot of Maori providers and leaders and Pacific providers and other public health people are, are, are really not uh, uh, impressed with how this government is rushing through um, the uh, the build to uh, Abolish the Māori Health Authority. There's no great emergency, so people are wondering what's the hurry. And and you know, and there should be some consultation. Uh, there is a uh, hearing at the Māori at the Waitangi Tribunal uh, due in two or three days, I think. Uh, and the the risk with that was, of course, the tribunal might say that it's not appropriate and that the Māori Health Authority should be retained and people are wondering why this rushed last night. Uh, clearly they want to get ahead at the Waitangi Tribunal hearing.
1: Mm, thank you for that. Uh, if you're just tuning in uh, on Pacific Beat, we're speaking with Sir Colin Toguitonga, public health expert, discussing these impacts of dis- establishing uh, the Māori Health Authority there in Aotearoa. Again, what are the options then that Māori people have uh, once this is really removed?
8: Well, the Minister has said Te Fatuora, the, uh, the main health body, Health New Zealand, will take responsibility. Some parts of it will go to the Ministry of Health. Uh, there'll be Māori providers, other agencies involved, and, and, and that's, I suppose, a way forward. The, the problem is this is what we've had for decades, and it's not done anything for Māori, uh, and many of us who think that the Māori Health Authority was a real chance that things could change because they'll challenge the system, they'll implement um, you know, new policies, they'll have more Māori involvement, and there was hope and a, and a genuine uh, belief that things could have changed, and the Māori Health Authority wasn't really given a chance to demonstrate its impact.
1: Mm. And I'm wondering then, uh, Sir Colin, what would then government need to do to fill that gap? What are the alternatives? Have, they, have you had any word of what they're saying would be a better improvement than what they have in the Multi Health Authority?
8: Well, they'll say they'll give decision-making closer to hapū, these other tribes, to the local community uh, um, uh, bodies, and that's commendable. But as I say, we've been there before. And those of us who've been around a while get get really uh, cynical about these kinds of things. In in many ways, we're going back to what we've always had, and on that basis, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll see any significant improvement in Māori uh, health outcomes in in the in the immediate future.
1: So, Colin, what are you hearing in your circles, though, among you know maybe health workers about these plan changes?
8: Well, a lot of people are disappointed, and this is on top of uh, the plans by the new coalition government to repeal our world-leading smoke-free legislation. This is just uh, one more thing that the new government is... uh, uh, looks to be uh, dismantling so there's a lot of us uh, the, the health sector pretty much uh, was unanimous in their condemnation of the plan to repeal the smoke-free legislation. The new associate health minister uh, responsible for smoking is, is trying to protect uh, the, the price of tobacco from inflation. You know Things that uh, are really just at odds with what we know is is good practice.
1: Uh, you talk about the smoke- free legislation, and so Colin, if you don't mind reminding maybe our listeners about the stats, possibly, because we know that mouldy, often dying seven years earlier than non-Mauri. I mean, uh, what are the stats? Is it that uh, the government does not fully understand uh, that removing this health authority will have major impacts on on our Maori community?
8: You referred to the difference in life and expectancy. and Yeah, it's a, a, a marked difference between uh, European New Zealanders uh, and Maori. And it has not changed. It's uh, leveled off for uh, decades. And this is why people uh, think that the Maori Health Authority was one idea, one option that could have made a difference. There are clearly other problems in the housing sector and education and jobs and so on. So it's a big ask. But the Māori Health Authority was one opportunity to make a, a difference. O- on the smoking issue, um, New-, New Zealand's done well, I think, m- the, for the general population. Smoking is now uh, at its uh, lowest. But Māori adults and Pacifica adults are still uh, have smoking rates that are very high and they're stubbornly high, not coming down, as we've seen in other groups. That's why the concern about the repeal of the smoke-free legislation. So
1: moving forward, uh, Colin, as we wrap up, what is it that you would ultimately like to see uh, moving forward?
8: Well, I think the Māori Health Authority is a done deal and clearly we can't (coughs) go back to that. But there clearly needs to be significant investment in Māori health, not just in health services, but in Housing and in education and access to nu- uh, nutritious food, the things that really make a difference in respect of uh, good health, uh, as well as investments and enabling Māori health providers to take uh, responsibility, uh, it, you know, that those kinds of things need to be put in place uh, and investments uh, increased regardless of what it's called, I suppose. So that's what I think is needed.
1: Mm. Uh, We just want to say lahi, Sir Colin, for your time this morning. Again, always appreciate your expertise and wisdom.
8: Thank you, Aggie. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so good to catch up with you again. That, of course, is public health expert Sir Colin Tukuitonga. Stay tuned for your news wrap shortly.
7: Want all the latest Pacific news, sports and entertainment delivered in your inbox every Thursday? ABC Pacific have launched a free weekly newsletter with exclusive content from across the Pacific by your favourite ABC presenters. Be the first to know about upcoming events and competitions in your area plus much more absolutely free and direct to you. It's easy to sign up. Just go to abc.net.au Pacific and enter your email to join today.
1: it is that time where we head around the region to get your latest headlines uh, with our news rep brought to you by producer Mackenzie Smith. With that, I say good morning, Mackenzie. Kia ora, Aggie. Yeah, thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, firstly, Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister uh, says they may need Australian support to resolve this fuel crisis.
5: Yeah, so PNG's sole fuel provider, Puma Energy announced earlier this month that it had run out of supplies and had cancelled contracts with some clients. This relates to an ongoing dispute between Puma Energy and PNG's central bank over its foreign exchange orders. And and since then, gas stations have closed. Uh, There's been long uh, queues of desperate people at the few uh, gas stations remaining open. Now, the national report's Prime Minister James Merape saying the government is now looking at an alternative fuel supplier from Australia, although he says Australia has indicated it could only provide an emergency supply. Uh, And Merape says obstacles remain, including difficulty storing jet fuel. Wow.
1: But meanwhile, though, uh, fuel prices are set to increase, though, across PNG, right?
5: Yeah, this comes from the Independent Consumer and Competition Commission, which is warning consumers and PNG that they are left with two choices: uh, either a, a fuel shortage, uh, or uh, the option of fuel with an additional premium on the current price in order to uh, reduce demand and, and conserve those supplies. Loop uh, PNG reports the commission is also working with alternative fuel suppliers. Uh, to see if other countries' fuel shipments could be temporarily diverted to PNG, although uh, they say this would incur significant costs.
1: Mm, interesting. It uh, looks like we're still staying with PNG. They've also signed a security treaty with Indonesia. What's happening here?
5: Yeah, busy news day for PNG. banan News reports uh, PNG and in Indonesia on Tuesday signed a defence deal that will see joint patrols take place. Uh, along PNG's porous border with Indonesia and in, uh, through West Papua, PNG's Foreign Minister Justin Kachinko says the agreement will help secure PNG's capacity to monitor and control immigration between Indonesia and PNG. And when reportedly asked whether the agreement would see PNG support military operations against West Papua independence fighters. Uh, Kachenko said the government respects Indonesia's sovereignty and doesn't interfere in internal Indonesian matters.
1: Wow a lot is happening in PNG uh, but thank you again Mackenzie for bringing our news wrap this morning. No worries. Now attacks from native wildlife happen every year in Australia with snakes, spiders and sharks being the main offenders but have you ever heard of a wallaby attacking someone? Kamnapia has more.
0: Casting a fishing line in Tasmania.
10: A quick Google search will tell you that kangaroos and wallabies really only injure people if they're scared or harassed. But that's not what Mick Rippon experienced while he was trout fishing on Tasmania's central plateau.
11: My friends were on the good side of the lake catching fish and I was on the side where there was no trout. So I, I went to walk to the next tarn and I was just walking up this little stream and, uh, and as I was walking along I heard this sort of grunting noise and, oh, what's that? And it sort of got louder and then it came towards me and then I see this wallaby. and It's making a beeline straight for me. <laughs> And I think, oh, he's just gonna run past, or, you know, Wallaby's not gonna come at me or anything like that, and um, yeah. And next minute, I, his head's right, almost level with my head, and he's jumped straight at my chest, and I'm sort of staggering backwards in just complete disbelief. The only thing I was armed with was the fly rod and, uh, and my hand, so I sort of had to sort of push the Wallaby down and try and push him away. Just in a very startled response, yelling all sorts of expletives and (laughs) staggering backwards and sort of thinking how inadequate the fly rod was as a defence mechanism and thinking, what's wrong with the swallabies? They've got rabies or something. But it was a very, very strange experience,
9: I've got to say.
10: So did it go at you like you see kangaroos do with with its feet? Like, did it have a crack at your chest or your stomach?
11: Well, it, it sort of jumped right up high at me, which really, really startled me. You know, I know know the big grey kangaroos will try and grab you and then they'll try and rip you down with their big back legs. My dog's had a close uh, experience with a a very large kangaroo, but... Um, this thing just jumped at my chest. <laughs> I was just staggering backwards. But, yeah, the only thing that was really hurt was my pride. And uh, and, uh, <laughs> and your fly and the red, rod. And my fly rod, yeah. So, uh, yeah, luckily I was able to... Repl- uh, like I had, I had a replacement rod with me at the time. So, yeah, I was on the radio away to the boys and I could see the r- antenna and the radio shaking. I was sort of so taken aback and said, oh, I've just been to by a Wallaby. And, of course, they were in disbelief. I'm, I'm convinced it was more like a Tyrannosaurus in a fur cave. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just... At
10: 35 years you've been hanging out in the central plateau fishing for trout, Have you, you would have seen countless wallabies. Have you ever thought, gee, that could bite me or attack me at head height?
11: No, no, abs- absolutely not. But after that experience, I was walking around the next lake by myself and uh, I was looking over my shoulder, I can tell you. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre, that's for sure. Like we... <laughs> We, we go out there and we see lots of snakes, and I think the most we've seen in one day is 11 tiger snakes, and we Ooh. tend to get quite close to them because we're sort of stalking around the lakes, so, so they're genuinely scary, but, uh, yeah, I've never, ever thought of a, a little fluffy wallaby as being scary or a threat whatsoever. So it was really, really, really strange. And yeah.
10: you're a conservationist with a scientific background. Have you ever even heard of anything like this?
11: No, I mean, you see videos of kangaroos when when they're cornered and things like that, but no, never and never in my life a wallaby. So, yeah, yeah, very, very strange indeed.
1: Very strange indeed. That is Kim Napier with that story. in three months' time, Vanuatu will hold its first referendum since independence where the public will vote on proposed changes to the constitution. The referendum aims to secure Vanuatu's political future and end political instability. Joining me this morning right here in our Melbourne studio is Vanuatu journalist Leah Laonbu. With that, I say good morning, Leah. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. Yeah, it is a good morning um, (laughs) that you are here to join us this morning and take us through uh, just a little bit more understanding around this referendum. Can you can you let us know uh, what this referendum is about and what is it that it's asking NIVANs?
9: So the referendum is actually to do with a change or an amendment to the uh, constitution. Uh, according to the constitution, uh, in order to make any changes or amendment, it needs to go through a referendum. So uh, at the end of last year's um, parliament, um, the, uh, leaders of, in parliament, members of parliament have passed, um, amendments to the constitution. And, um, uh, this referendum will, uh, focus on the two, uh, amendments. So, yeah, that's, uh, exactly what's happening, yeah.
1: Maybe explain a little bit about, uh, what is it, in-depth candidates, they must affiliate with parties after three months. Okay?
9: Yeah, so um Article 17B of the Constitution, uh, this amendment will allow um, uh, that any independent candidate who is elected uh, needs to affiliate one of, with one of the political party uh, within a period of three months. And within that period, he has to, there's like processes that he has to go through to make sure that he has um, affiliated with the party.
1: Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. that makes sense now. Um, Leah, why is it seen, though, as, as vital to the country's future?
9: I think... Uh, a lot of people might know about that and uh, uh, Civic Beat has reported a lot on that uh, the instability in the country and last year Vanuatu has elected three prime minister and uh, people have seen this as um, 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 the, the main reason why this is happening is because members of parliament are changing their affiliation in party and crossing floors to join the government or join the opposition and then Lodge emotion of no confidence against one prime minister and we see a change and and people are saying there's no focus towards um development in the country so a government is more focused towards trying to keep its number uh, instead of focusing on uh, developments in the country but despite its importance i know that there's been concerns that
1: people may not participate
9: yeah there's like a a, a definitely a mixture of uh feeling towards the referendum uh but mostly i mean currently w- what we're seeing is that more more discussion and there's a stronger uh push towards yes voting yes uh definitely we know the government will be uh, campaigning and will be uh talking about uh, why people should vote yes in the referendum but there's also a lot of people where um they uh, uh, also uh, have a different idea or thought about the referendum. Uh, we've seen that like on social media discussions and all that. There's uh, um, a bit of uh, discussion towards no and why um, it's a bad idea. Um, yesterday we spoke to the uh, Transparency International uh, civic educator, uh, Mr. Douglas Tamara, and he mentioned that their concerns is mainly about the participation of people uh, towards the referendum so um what what they're um, afraid of is uh, because um, elections in Vanuatu there's like a low turnout of that so um it could be possible that uh, with the low participation now in the discussions that are happening, it's not showing a good sign that we'll have like a good uh, turnout at the polling polling day.
1: Yeah, because often, I mean, you know, when we look at it, w- whether they agree or not, uh, the importance is to actually take part, right? Yes. Mm. Um, again, what's the support with the public, though, like electoral office?
9: The electoral office. So I think um, the main role is currently to um, focus on awareness through to, throughout Vanuatu, uh, throughout all the eighty-three plus islands, and making sure that people do understand the referendum because it's the first time for Vanuatu since its independence in nineteen eighty, and uh, a lot of people might, uh, of course, they don't uh, know the process of the election. So it's important that they, they do have this uh um, nationwide uh, awareness happening and uh, we've seen update that they're, they're in uh, some of the islands doing awareness on Tana this week earlier this week yeah.
1: Leah are you aware of how much funds is being put towards the referendum
9: yeah, according to uh, reports and also the National Broadcasting Service in Vanuatu, they've uh, reported that uh, the government has approved the three hundred and fifty million towards the referendum. And out of that fund, one million will be allocated to uh, help support uh, me- uh, political parties to to be able to make awareness of the referendum.
1: Uh, and we did just speak about, you know, voter turnout. The the election usually is a bit of a low, low one. So then, how is the government making sure people are well informed of the referendum?
9: I think um, um, they've been putting out like a lot of information. There's a a big uh, launch uh, happened uh, earlier this year uh, that uh, um, makes sure that uh, people are uh, well informed of the information. And there's like this widespread. Um, uh, awareness that's happening at this time and um, using all the other platform and making sure that people understand what the, the referendum is. Awesome,
1: Leah. Look, we appreciate your time giving us a bit of insight uh, into the upcoming elections there in Vanuatu. Thank you. That is Vanuatu journalist Leah Lowenbu. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Hey, look, it's time to take a look back at one of our main stories today, a historic meeting of Fiji's traditional leaders. The Great Council of Chiefs, it's taking place today. And our ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lede Movono, is there.
2: It's going to be very important for the government and for the people behind no, the I introduction was of me. the GCC to ensure that the policies and the, and, and the way in which it is structured moving forward makes everyone else that live in this country so safe and protected.
1: And that was our ABC reporter in Fiji, Lede Movono. Remember, if you want to find any of our top stories, you simply just need to head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. Uh, I'll be back at the same time next week because tomorrow is your sports edition of Pacific Beat with Richard Hewitt. Uh, You can hear us again this afternoon, 5pm PNG time. Uh, Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next coming up after that. It is Nisha Daily. And you know what? I just realized tomorrow's Thursday, so I am going to be back, guys. Apologies for the mistake there. <laughs> it's Wednesday. Uh, but again, tune in tomorrow, 6 a.m. PNG time. We appreciate your company. Till then, I'm Aggie the Bowl, and this is Pacific Beat.